Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. Thank you for joining us for our first episode of 2021. Remember, we take your questions each episode, so write to politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, and please don't forget to tell us where you're from. This episode is sponsored by Blinkist. Please check out the links to our sponsors in the show notes, and we thank you for supporting our sponsors. It really helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. James, um, you know, I didn't get much sleep last night, but uh, I had a sprightly step today, as they say, even for an old guy. It's a pretty terrific feeling. And when you look at what happened in Georgia yesterday, March, they, those voters marched through Georgia. I'll tell you, I didn't get much sleep, and I, I probably took the better Better part of a guy in a wrestling match with a with a fifth of maker's mark, and I won, and I still don't even have a hangover. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> something. We 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 have uh, as our guest the person who first really called this race weeks ago, um, and he is a um, he, he is from Louisiana, so that's why he's probably so smart. But it's John Kubion. Uh, John, thank you for joining us and. You said weeks ago when people were saying this race is either too close to call or give a slight edge to the Republicans, at least in one of these races, you said that it looks like the Democrats are going to win both. What did you see back then that a lot of others missed? The first thing that caught my attention about the Georgia race, I will admit to you that in the beginning, that is November 4th, when at the time Donald Trump was actually leading the state. I looked at the election results and said, well, this looks like 51-49 across the board in terms of the House vote, the vote for the two Senate races, and the presidential vote. Therefore, the Republicans should be in good shape for the runoff. However, where my mind or where my, uh, I guess you say I could change my mind sharply was once I started seeing the demographic composition of not only the mail-in vote, but the in-person early vote, I realized the Democrats were working overtime to get their vote out. And the thing is, with Georgia being a Southern state, and of course, with myself being a fellow Southerner, the one thing that is essential for any Democrat to have a chance of winning statewide is you have to have a robust Black turnout. When I saw that happening in Georgia, It brought back memories of the 2019 gubernatorial runoff in Louisiana, where Democrats had an elevated turnout relative to what they had the primary, and that elevated turnout put the incumbent governor, John Bell Edwards, over the top. So based on what I saw, that first caught my attention that not all was well in Republican land, in addition to the fact that the Republicans, in my opinion, spent way too much time obsessing over the election instead of trying to get two new two Republican senators reelected. Well, one thing I will say, and I, I give my partner James Carville total credit on this, weeks ago he was saying not only was the black vote 
going to be key. But it wasn't just the black vote in Atlanta and the big urban areas that people forget. A lot of the rural South has very heavy black populations. And James's theory is that theory was, and I think is, that they were going to turn out uh, in, in part, at least, because Leffler and to some extent Purdue really kind of criticized the black church. That didn't go over very well in that community. Right. And I think the thing that's important to appreciate, too, is that especially when you're talking about these small towns that across most of the Deep South, including Louisiana, where you do have a heavy black population, it's also much more centered around the church. And so given that you had Reverend Warnock as one of the standard bearers on the Democratic ticket, that to me kind of struck a chord with that more rural church going vote in a way that other Democrats could not hope to tap. So yes, that was certainly something that helped the Democrats. And and I think the decision for Reverend Warnock and John Ossoff to campaign as the team was good because each could complement the other's strengths and weaknesses. Or should I say ameliorate each other's weaknesses? Right. John, the one thing, I mean, boy, you were right on. There's one thing that shocked me. I was convinced in talking to people yesterday that the only way Republicans had any chance was with a huge election day turnout. And the cutoff might have been, I don't know, maybe 1.1 million. If they were below that, they were were dead. If they were above that, they were going to be gold. 1.3 million turned out and they were still dead because I gather a lot of Democrats turned out too. Right. And that's the other half of what I experienced in Louisiana in 2019 and applied that experience to what I saw happening in Georgia. And by the way, this is before I even decided to poll the race. What I saw was this. Once I found Democrats are on a roll with early voting, I found that the proverbial spigot does not turn off on election day. In other words, Democrats keep on going with turnout efforts on election day. So you have this Republican mindset, which I think is 100% incorrect. That is, if the Democrats get a jump on the early vote, that all they're doing is cannibalizing the total vote cast. The truth I've found is an elevated early vote is about 50-50 in terms of cannibalization versus new voters you're bringing into the electoral bloodstream. James. Okay. Uh, first of all, uh, so John, uh, uh, let's establish this. You are a regular, you're an adjunct professor uh, at my <laughs> class. Yes. And we always love having you because you're always uh, pristinely attired and thoroughly prepared. Uh, also, uh, before we start this at, I'll tell our audience, and we're certainly different generations, but our ancestral home is a place in Louisiana called Avoyles Parish. Yes. Which is the northernmost outpost of the Anglo-Saxon French Triangle, the French part of the Triangle, and also was the home of the great Edwin Edwards and a very famous sheriff by the name of F.O. Potch Didier, who will always be remembered for being incarcerated in his own jail. And so Poch Didier is a, is a cultural icon in northern Acadiana. <laughs> I, I, I just wanted our audience to know that uh, you and I are friends and, and uh, our, our, our roots are, are common. But yes. Just for, for the record here, you're a Republican. Correct. Correct. Okay, and, and you do polling and strategic advice and et cetera, et cetera. 
Yes, but my Republican client, my client base is essentially Republicans, and I, you know, wh- whether I tell them good or bad news, I my personal opinions and what I tell clients are you know two entirely different things. <laughs> I understand. Everybody deals it, and Alex has worked with a lot of posters and everything, and most of the good ones take some pleasure in giving you bad news. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's okay, but you, you know, you don't have to get on on when you tell me. But <laughs> we know the thing. The thing about it, I guess, pleasure is kind of a tricky word to use. I think it's more of a case of you feel you know something that the rest of the campaign and or conventional wisdom has not yet caught up on. So I think that's what the pleasure is: is hey. I'm seeing something that not everyone else is yet seeing, and therefore, perhaps I could hopefully make a difference. Yeah, uh, maybe. So this is going to be the big issue going forward. And, and so we go into this election, and everything was and not the Democrats, they have the squad, they have uh, Joe Manchin, Pelosi can't get the votes, they're, they're really a screwed up party. They had a terrible, outside of Joe Biden, all right, who won by less than people thought he would. We, the Democrats had an awful night on the 3rd of November. Awful. They From did. They the did. White House, the courthouse, the, the White House, they got the White House, the Congress. Now it's all going to be, well, what does the Republican Party do? And I'm going to take a little bit of setup here. When we lose, we go, oh, God, John Kerry was such a nice man, and Hillary didn't answer the negatives, and Mike Dukakis was, you know, too bad. And we're like, oh, sing kumbaya. When you guys lose, they go after each other with a meat cleaver. Yes. What is going forward? What is going to be the debate in the Republican Party? And where will Donald Trump fit into this debate post Georgia? I think the tricky thing is for Republicans to learn to toe that fine line between absolute adherence to Donald Trump and a desire to win elections. Because one of the things I think that was a very costly distraction to Republicans in Georgia, and by the way, this was a similar distraction to what they had in 2010 in places like Colorado, Nevada, and Delaware, which is when you're focusing on what you think the crowd needs to hear versus what 51% of voters need to hear, that requires a totally different type of messaging. And so Right now, the Republicans have tied themselves to Donald Trump, and in doing so, they allowed themselves to uh, lose the momentum in Georgia. I kind of wonder how much of that behavior would be tolerated going into 2021 and 2022, because obviously Donald Trump will still want to play a prominent role in the party. The question is, if Republicans are going to blind, Republican candidates and operatives are going to blindly follow that. Or try to steer him into him and their candidate into a more productive elect direction, which is winning. Well, all right. So right here, you have the the, the kind of opening lines of battle. So that Josh Howley and Ted Cruz came up with this idea. I guess it's it's going through now. I'm not looking at the, the television currently by challenging the, the election results. And Tom Cotton. You know, who who basically like drinks from the same vat made a counter move. Yes. Uh, is Cotton a winner in this, do you think? Short term, no, but longer term, yes. 
but it looks like he, you know, first of all, all three of these guys are, are highly educated and highly ambitious, of which I, I was the latter, not the former, but it right. doesn't matter. All right. And they, they don't do, they don't make a move what I thought. Now, I, I thought that they left old Cotton an opening and he just kind of ran right through it. And, and you know, the interesting thing. Yeah, he has to be the happiest man in the world about what happened in Georgia. Well, you know, the interesting thing about what you just said, this reminds me a lot of going all the way back to 1991 when Bill Clinton strategically separated himself from the more left-wing elements of the Democratic Party. And, and of course, that was leading up to the Sister Soldier moment in the summer of 92, that in the short term, it earned the enmity of the Democratic activists. But as time went on, that voters who, in those critical states like Pennsylvania and Michigan and so forth, who might have been uncomfortable with a liberal Democrat on the ticket, were more comfortable with Bill Clinton because he had declared his independence from what was party orthodoxy. So I see that as kind of being the play that Tom Cotton is making, because I think it would be a mistake to assume that a hundred, while Trump has very strong approval rating amongst Republicans, I don't believe that approval rating necessarily translates to a hundred percent agreement with this behavior, which is just kind of a temper tantrum. Hey, John, let me, let me get you back to Georgia. Did Trump cost the Republicans those two elections? Oh, definitely. Because if you think about it, what happened was the first month of the runoff was basically spent, you know, dealing with all kinds of accusations of voter fraud. And then I don't really think the Republicans were able to independently establish their identities for the remainder of the runoff season. And by then, the Democrats had banked three million votes. So absolutely, I think he cost the Republicans because imagine if he had done multiple rallies and not just the one last night in Northwest Georgia. I think he could have gotten more Republicans to, oh, and more importantly, have the rallies focused on electing Republicans as kind of a living tribute to his presidency. I think he could have gotten more voters to the polls for him. So, uh, John, I, I pointed out last night on television, he went to uh, Dalton, which is Whitfield County. Yes. Actually, Osirak ran a tenth of a point ahead of Biden in Whitfield County. Yes. And turnout was, the decline in turnout in Whitfield County was greater than the, the rest of the state, but, but voted like, I don't know, 12% of what they, which was pretty, it was high. Yeah, like it was very high. November 3rd, and they voted like 14%. Right. And I really stuck the shiv in him, you know, said he came, he saw, and he lost. Yeah. He, did, he did worse. And I, I used Osiroff because he was considered to, you know, he got a few less votes than Warnock. So actually, Osiroff got a, a higher percentage. You know, it's a huge Republican county. And maybe right. by, or Biden got 20.2 and he got 20.3. But the, but the turnout was... You know, if the, the state decline was 12, theirs was 14. And I, it was just a good example of just shove it up him. Right. Yeah, but, well, also yeah. but, you know, the interesting thing about what you're talking about, Dalton, and or really Whitfield County, Northwest Georgia, 
is you're talking about an area that psychologically is disconnected from the state because they're in the Chattanooga media market. So in other words, the folks up there are equally oriented towards what's, go- towards what's going on in Tennessee as they are in Georgia. And that's certainly a challenge a Republican statewide candidate would have is you have to pay appropriate attention to that area, even though some of your ads are going to get shown in Chattanooga and surrounding counties in Tennessee. But you need that turnout, is my point. Right. And, and, and you know, Georgia has one, you know, in our t- terminology, one massive, really clean buy, and that's Atlanta. Correct. I mean, that market is all Georgia, and it probably covers, I don't know, 75% of the state. But then you got you got dirty buys like Chattanooga, uh, Tallahassee. Yep. Jacksonville, you know, Spartanburg, one county yes. in Dothan, Alabama. It, it's insane yeah, how. In Alabama. Yeah. It, so, and there was so much money in the race. They were able to just flood those, those really secondary markets. Yes. You know, it was, it was just a, from a political consultant standpoint. It was, it was a, it was a feast of different things that, that, you know, you you deal with all your life when you grow up in this business like you and I have. Yeah. You know, Albert? Well, no, I just want to, John, you were terrific. I know you got to rest on your laurels. I mean, if I were you, I think I'd stay out of the prediction business for about a year because <laughs> uh, you got big laurels to rest on, and then you can come back uh, as a triumphant king because you did, you did one heck of a job. You called it ahead of anybody else. A lot of well, people were nervous after November 3. So congratulations and thank you for joining us. Thank you. And one final thought, which is kind of interesting. When I went back at the looked at the results by each region of Georgia and compared them against my poll, the interesting thing was the same shy Trump voter that has been talked about over and over and which I published an article last week on my blog about, it happened again once you got outside of the first couple suburban rings, you know, First, you're talking about I-285 and then the ring of counties surrounding it. In that area, the Atlanta vote broke exactly like what my poll said. But once you got beyond the Atlanta orbit into the hinterlands like that in central, middle Georgia and south Georgia, there was a Trump swing that was not apparent in my poll. And so, again, I think that was a demonstration of the Trump effect that is something that both Democrats and Republicans have to be cognizant of when you're polling certain races where Donald Trump becomes a factor. What's the name of your blog so our, our listeners can... Certainly. WinWithJMC.com, and I periodically post things, uh, the most recent ones, of course, being the Georgia poll, and evaluating whether the quote-unquote pollsters got it wrong. Spoiler alert, not as much as you would think they did. Well, All right. I don't think any of them got it, you know, quite as right as you did. So congratulations thank again, uh, John. Thank you for being our first guest in 2021. Good After way to start look. the year. Go Tigers. Go Tigers. Yeah. Okay. When you don't have free time, you can't read or work on personal development, and it can be really hard to find the time to sit down and read and learn more about the things that really interest you. Let me tell you about a secret weapon for learning new things and getting ahead. It's an incredible app that solves this problem, and I highly recommend it. It's called Blinkist. James? Well, this is no secret to anybody. I have a a, a very short attention span. Uh, I've actually been 
diagnosed with, with, with I don't know, ADHD or HDD or whatever the whatever they call it. And uh, for a guy like me, this thing is just like, I think it's a product that was invented for James Carville. Because there's just no way that I have the attention span. If, you know, maybe when I was in college, I'd do some of it because just because I had to and very good at it. And, and this, this, to somebody like me that just likes to read that has a short attention span, this is a godsend. This is this is a tremendous product. It really is. And, and it, maybe if you're a literature professor, you, it, it's not for you. But if you're somebody going through life that's interested in a lot of different things and you want to have a kind of broad view of the world, this might be the number one product that's available out there. It, it, well, I, it, I, I recommend it that highly. You are right. It's made for busy and successful people like you. You want to get the main points of a book quickly. So you start using that information right away. And with its right. audio feature, Blinkist makes it easy to finish a book anywhere, anytime. 12 million people are using Blinkist right now and is a massive and growing library. Everything from self-help to business, health, history, along with the latest titles from bestseller list and the classic nonfiction titles that you always meant to read or you, you, you read when you were in the 10th grade and haven't revisited, but you can go back and do it now. They have some great books on there. Two of our recent favorites are Sea Stories, My Life and Special Operations by Admiral William McRaven and Notorious RBG by, by Aaron Carmen and Shanna Koniznek. Uh, these are really terrific deals. And go, please get our free vouchers and share your personal experience with our listeners. With Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books, all the books you want, and all for one low price. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audiences. Go to Blinkist.com slash warroom. That's all one word to try it free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash warroom to start your free day, seven day trial, or look for the link in our show notes. You'll also save 25% off, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com slash warroom. We thank them for sponsoring this podcast. Um, James, we got a lot more to talk about, a lot going on in Washington. I actually got some news, and that is that uh, Joe Biden has appointed Merrick Garland as Attorney General. Uh, which oh, I think I that, that is news. I think that's a I think that's a spectacular choice. He is I, I, the I former Garland a deep and abiding reference of the federal criminal code. Yeah, he, he, he is. He, you know, a distinguished judge. He was, of course, screwed by Mitch McConnell, an outrageous act. He should have been on the Supreme Court, but he's also was the uh, prosecutor of the Oklahoma City bombing case. Uh, worked for many years in the Justice Department, will command a lot of respect in that <clears throat> demoralized place. And uh, as someone who's capable of making uh, above the fray independent decisions, I think it just is, I it took a long time. I'm sure there was internal debate, but it was really, it is really a good choice. It is. And it, if he ever says anything like it's time to turn a page and not look back, I will deregister as a Democrat. I have no interest in being a member of a political party whose chief legal officer does not believe in enforcing the federal criminal code. And I mean that. And I have no reason to believe 
that he thinks like that. I think he has a, I think he understands what the criminal code is. And if there are, in his opinion, there are violations of it, he will hold people accountable. It is well, the while, number one you know, to me going on everything. Today, the United States Senate is engaged in one of the great shams uh, that we've ever seen. Uh, it is, uh, this was, this was not a close election, James. I mean, Joe Biden won by more than 7 million votes. He got 306 electoral votes. Close elections were Donald Trump, who won the electoral college while getting clobbered in the popular vote. Close elections was 2004 when, uh, Bush won because he won Ohio. Close elections were 2000, which was basically a tie. This wasn't a close election. Uh, and they're engaged and really, it's not just a sham, but it's a really dangerous game they're playing because what they're, they're inciting people and, and uh, it's setting a precedent that someday there will be a close election and it may be much harder uh, for this country to deal with. I, I just think, and the other thing I'd say is everybody who went to North Dakota State or, you know, Wyoming or Wake Forest or LSU ought to feel good because Ted Cruz, Princeton, Harvard Law School, Josh Hawley, Stanford, Yale Law School. This is a stinging rebuke to the elites. Uh, well, I, it is. Not, you know, and I, of course, I like to, to, to gig the elite. What about John Kennedy? Uh, I mean, good God, that guy's like a Rhodes Scholar. I don't. I thought I'd like to just one day get one of these guys on the podcast and say, like, do you really believe this shit? Right? Is this a? Because it has to be an act. It has to be an act. But whatever it is, they're out there. Not and the thing is, it's so man. It's silly. Of course, it's not going to work. And. I know what they, our friend Senator Lankford, who we had on the show, he got caught up in that. I think he tried to mercifully get it, extract himself for that. Is, you know, what were you thinking, man? You know, of course, Imhoff was like a crazy client. Imhoff, who was a senior senator and the right wing senator from Oklahoma. And Jim yeah. Langford being the independent-minded kind of conservative uh, who we had on yeah. the show. And who caved because he's petrified about a primary challenge in 2022. He's a good guy. I like him. But on this, he was cowardly. He really was. I, I was it was just stunningly disappointing to see that. Yeah. I don't I, – I, Kennedy, I'm used to. He, he loves – I don't know. He's a smart guy who does this act as a fool. I don't know why he does it, but he that was the final – that was the completion of his fooldom. James, he left his credentials and his IQ in Louisiana when he came to the Senate. Well, I think he did, man. I think he did because, like I say, you know, he used to be a Democrat. Yeah. I, I, I mean, it, it is, yeah, it's more like he a buffoon. He, he's not even good at all that folksy shit right. he pulled off. Right. It's, it's, just, it's an act. You can see that. Now, he can't be. I, I, I'll defend him on that. No one can be stupider than Clay Higgins. You got to... You got to look this guy up. We ought to, like, he was on something on CNN. It needs a congressman from the 3rd District of Louisiana. He is in, in a state that is, it's hard to embarrass Louisiana any more than Louisiana's been embarrassed by God knows what not. Clay Higgins stands out. He, he's a standout. I, I, I'll 
get Jeremiah. We'll put a tape, a little bit of him together oh, next week. Okay, James, I'll take your Clay Higgins and I'll raise you. Louis Gomer. Okay. Nah, nah. Clay, Clay, Star Wars. Well, maybe we'll do who, who's dumber. Boy, I tell you, it's a great contest. We are, you're right. We got to get a tape. We'll do it next week. We'll get, uh, Daniel can, can edit, you know, the best right. 90 seconds of Clay Higgins and the best 90 seconds of Lou Gomer. Maybe we'll have a contest and, you know, people can vote on it. People, people can vote. But, you know, while there are, I don't know how many House members, there are you know, well over, I think, 100 House members are going to go along with this travesty and 13 or 14 senators. There are some people who have stood up and have shown, you know, uh, you, you, you almost hate to give them credit for doing what is so obviously correct, constitutional, historical, and everything else. But in this context, you have to. In the Senate, it's been Mitt Romney and some others. And the House, I want to particularly single out Liz Cheney. Liz Cheney, who is a a deeply conservative member, uh, she gets it honestly from her dad, uh, a person in the leadership, uh, has really refused to be whipsawed by these Trump crazies and has stood up for constitutional principles. James, as she said, basically what these people are doing is so anti-conservative. They're saying we can decide what a state did. We can decide what Wisconsin did or how Arizona voted or how Georgia voted. I'm sorry. I thought it was the that 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 populace, that government that's closest to the people is the best. I thought that was the conservative principle. These people have turned it upside down. Well, I, first of all, I, I, I think what Liz would say, and I don't, but it, it, the Trump is not a conservative. Of course, he's not. I mean, but not by any, you know, and I am hardly, I mean, hardly a Cheney conservative. My, full disclosure, my wife was a top aide to Dick Cheney when he was vice president. She is very close friends with Liz Cheney. She is almost best friends with Kara O'Hearn, who, who is the, her chief of staff. But but I, if I maybe we'll invite her to show, but, but I, I think what Liz would say, I never asked her, I'm sure Dick Cheney would say is conservative. He's not a conservative. I, I, I mean, and they, I'm sure they would give you chapter and verse of, of examples of that. And I talk, I'll just talk about a little bit about uh, Brad Rauschenberger. Right? Ever gets the guy credit. I, I, I've been involved in 30 elections. I have never thought to thank the Secretary of State for counting the votes. It was just kind of a given. Yet, it, it, it's almost embarrassing us, but the guy really stood up and he counted the votes. And that lawyer he had was really smart because he he correctly, when, when Lindsey Graham, you know, called and started trying to talk him into changing votes, they said, this is crazy. They're going to tape every phone call that comes in. And... They taped that phone call with Trump with the lawyer in the room. Of course, my favorite, the lawyer's name is Ryan Germany. <laughs> Trump said, I really like your last name. Because if you remember, his first wife said he kept mine comp on his <laughs> night tape. I'm not, I'm not making that up. No, I know you're not. Uh, no, I, I agree. Listen, I, I spent 17 years on the Profile and Courage Committee 
up at the Kennedy Library. And if I were still on it, I, I, I stepped aside last year. I served long enough. It's a wonderful uh, award. It's a wonderful committee. It's a wonderful place. Boy, I'll tell you, uh, uh, Brad Raffensperg, uh, Mitt Romney, they got some great, great nominees this year. I mean, they, they really, they're, they're a couple people who really deserve a, a Profile and Courage Award. Oh, I mean, he, he does, but they, it, it's a, uh, it's a shame in a mind where you give somebody credit for like a vote count. For doing the right thing. Yeah, but, but, it, but, it, but, but it is assumed. Right. right. It's like when somebody stood up and they voted for the Civil Rights Act. All right. And I'm, and I'm saying about it, but I'm saying this is, this is how much courage has declined where you can think to give it to somebody who actually just followed the law. Well, and, and the reason you would is because the reason it's taking courage is because he is paying an enormous personal price. His family has been threatened. They are, they are going after him and it's just indicative of what Trump is unleashing. There's going to be violence. There's going to be terrible violence in this country. I fear uh, because that's what he's, that's his aim. And uh, I watched a little bit of that rally today um, uh, in front of the White House, which he appeared. Uh, and it really is. They are inciting people. And that's why this is so dangerous. This has nothing to do with constitutional principles. It has nothing to do with the election. It has nothing to do with anything but uh, salvaging Trump's ego uh, and his money. That's it. Look, I, 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 Fox is not crazy enough for me. So I listen to Newsmax a lot. I got to get Allie to fix it where I can get one American network because I think that's even crazy in Newsmax. But if you uh-huh. have satellite radio, I listen to 125 all the time. It's a Patriot channel. And if you listen to that, and if, and if that's where you got your news, you would go shoot somebody. You would be so mad it, because they're very, how they, the, 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 the media mob, the criminals, the, the, the Biden criminal syndicate family, the Chinese communists, you literally, you literally, if you, if that's why, there's a lot of people I just listen to that and nothing else. You, it, you would, you would shoot somebody. It would incite you to such anger. It, it, I, I recommend that every, every thinking American spend 15 minutes a day Listening to that stuff. How about a week? Is that okay? Just a week. No. 15 minutes a week. Maybe a half hour a week. I I, I spend three hours a week listening. Oh, James. But it's not, it's really, it's value is educational. And it's so, I can't tell you, like Mark Levin, and he's very good. He's so good, he makes me mad. And if, the, the 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 fraud that went up. They were backing trucks up. There were photos. There were affidavits. There was so much proof you wouldn't believe it. And there is there is not one shred of doubt. I mean, the Biden crime family. The how much money did he get? And I, I'm, I'm boy, you listen to it. You go, oh God, it's terrible. It, it it is really, it, it, it cannot be 
if you know, if you want to be a good citizen, if you want to like participate in this democracy, to to not listen to that shit is 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 a, is it is not is not fulfilling your civic responsibility? It well, is the so issue crazy. today, uh, of course, is uh, le- the legitimacy of the, um, of the ballots and whether there was fraud. There have been sixty courts. There has been the Republican Wisconsin State Supreme Court. There have oh. been Republican governors in places like Arizona and Georgia. There has been the Republican-dominated United States Supreme Court. All who have said one thing to those fraud charges that Trump is bringing, Balderdash. Some of them probably oh, say bullshit Albert, because so it awesome. is so totally, totally phony. And what you're what so they do is they make the charge. They go on Fox or they go on someplace else and they make these wild, crazy charges. Or Rudy goes in front of some landscaping and strip joint place and says, you know, all sorts of weird things. So, when they go before court, when they go before the court, it's a, it, the, the tune's quite different. And the reason the tune's quite different is. Because if you lie before court, you are liable, and 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 you can be cited. And uh, they have been very, very careful about that. And as our friend Walter Dellinger points out, when they went before, I think it was Arizona, and they were claiming that there were really no witnesses, and the judge said, "Well, were there witnesses?" Well, yeah, there are. There were. Well, how many Republican witnesses were there? And the guy hemmed and hauled, and he finally said, "More than zero. <laughs> if you can't do that, listen to Ludock. Yeah, you're actually listening to these unelected bureaucrats that are part of the deep state. The rhinos like Paul Ryan and Liz Cheney and the corrupt media and the Biden crime family, there are thousands of affidavits, sworn affidavits under the penalty of perjury. They are photographs, right? And yet it's so clever that you and your wife with the corrupt public broadcasting system, that's a, if you want to know exactly what is wrong with America, there you have it. Al Deep State, Northwest Washington, PBS, Bloomberg. I mean, my God, how, how, how deep. Crazy left-wing Wall Street Journal. Bill Cohen who, on, on, on a podcast, who is the biggest you know, rhino, deep stater, apologist for communist China. Let's that make ever clear, James, that this is what you, you are citing them. You're not citing yourself. I'm, of course I'm not citing myself. Okay, but well, let's make it clear. If you, when we say that, that's just fodder for their cannon. I, I, I know that stuff backwards and forwards because I listen to it. I don't miss... They, the, the, in their, the greatest enemy right now, for some reason, is Paul Ryan, who I, 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 I thought he was a sneaky little shit. All right. He's just a, like a servant for corporate power. But they, I mean, they, they go nuts on him. I mean, nuts. And, and I don't know what it well, is. At, but at they, that rally today, James, they said the, the, the Trump sons, my God, the Trump sons, so this is not the Republican Party. This is Donald Trump's Republican Party. That's what they really believe, and that's what they hope. And a couple tests of that, I don't think. I think Trump is in it, as I said, for the money. But um, Eric Trump's wife is saying, go run in North Carolina. If I'm a Democrat in North Carolina, I just say, bring it on. Come on down. Put that name on the ballot, and let's see how you do 
uh, now that this guy's been disgraced, because the fact is he's a loser. And uh, and that's becoming more and more evident. I think Georgia was a piece of understanding that. And um, there are still members, though. I, I agree with what you asked, John. I think that uh, that Josh Hawley is going to pay a price for this, and Tom Cotton is going to benefit. I think he made a shrewd calculation. And I look at some of those, some of those, some of those Republicans. I mean, my favorite example probably these days is Elise Stefanik, Bush Republican, head of the Tuesday Group, who had, has done a 180 and is marching lockstep with Jim Jordan, signing letters. Uh, she's made a calculation that I think is going to, I think is going to be a really bad one over the long run. All I care about is if Merrick Garland doesn't have in him in the penitentiary in 18 months, he should be fired. He doesn't have what? He doesn't have Donald Trump in a federal penitentiary in 18 months. Oh, I think it's much more likely to start start in, in Manhattan. I don't think it's going to start in the federal level. And I think that's okay. a, then, then, kind of a general accepted consensus. And, and, and that case is going to take a year or so. To, to I, I don't care all that I want. And, and by the way, he can, he, he's violated the, the, I'm sure he's violated the, the statutes of the state of New York. That should not exclude federal prosecution. This is the most corrupt person. It made that by, by far, by far, that attained major high office in the United States. Without accountability, we have no future as a country. Well, we got uh, we got fourteen more days. I'll be nervous. Um, every one of them, uh, Lord knows what he'll try. But uh, uh, this has been this has been a good week. Uh, it's going to end well. I think Georgia certainly uh, is promising. Merrick Garland is a good appointment. The Senate's going to go through uh, the motions of acting like fools, uh, and they will then confirm that Joe Biden is the uh, elected president of the United States. You know, take office in two weeks. I have an open mind on Garrett, Garrett Garland. I, I, I'm going to believe and trust that he is respectful and believes in the federal criminal code. Well, he's a, I mean, Lord knows you couldn't ask for better credentials, James. Again, credentials are great. All right. Yeah. Well, Look would at you Joe have Allen. another pick? I mean, I mean, who would you pick? I mean, if not Merrick Garland, who would you pick? I, I, I would pick someone, and maybe it's him. I would look him in the eye and say, do you believe in the criminal code of the United States? Well, everybody's going to say yes to that, of course. And he's willing to enforce it? I'm, I'm, I'm a thousand percent behind. Yeah, but. If he says anything like turn the page, I will, I, I will deregister as a Democrat. Well, I don't. I am a fanatic. It would be. To say it's time to turn the page would be like we need to uh, repeal voting rights. James, our guest is Bill Cohen, one of America's most distinguished public servants from leader of the 1974 impeachment committee in the House to 18 years as a Republican senator to Bill Clinton's defense secretary. Bill, thank you for joining us. Uh, yeah, that that with letter. You that you were one of 10 all living former defense secretaries signed warning that any Trump orchestrated political use of the military in the closing weeks was dangerous and unacceptable. That letter was unprecedented. We remember during Nixon that Jim Schlesinger privately said, Hey, if he does anything, you know, out of the ordinary, let me know, clear it with me. But that was all private. 
this was so dangerous or so perilous or so risky that you all felt that you had to go public? Well, we have been watching him for four years now, actually longer, and we have seen what he has done. Uh, He went to the voters and the voters rejected him. Uh, He went to the courts and the courts have rejected him. He's gone to the governors and the secretary of states uh, and they have rejected him. And now he's gone to Congress and he is likely, uh, very likely to be rejected there. Uh, The last um, organization he could, or institution he could turn to would be the military. And there has been reason for concern seeing that he has very little regard, if any, for the rule of law. And we saw that in Lafayette Square when he used the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and the Secretary of Defense uh, to march along with him and his cadre to um, push through a group of peaceful protesters using gas as well so he could hold up a Bible in front of the church. Uh, That's a signal that he has little regard for the use of the military for domestic affairs. So that coupled with the suggestion, it was reported that he had talked, someone had talked about martial law uh, in the White House. Uh, He denied that. But then, of course, uh, Lieutenant General Flynn uh, went public and said, well, yeah, you couldn't have uh, martial law take control of the states in question and then have a rerun of the election and have them making sure that it was, quote, legitimate. Well, that certainly got my attention. Uh, I've worried about that for a long time, that he would try and do something like that. But frankly, I was surprised when the letter was circulated, initiated by um, Dick Cheney, uh, a, a, a true conservative who believes in the rule of law, uh, that he felt um, something needed to be done and circulated the message through Eric Edelman, a high-ranking official in the Pentagon, um, and all of us basically signed on saying we all feel the same way. Uh, We don't want to see him turn to the military in any way to use for domestic purposes, but he's capable of it. And so we wanted to at least fire a warning shot, um, a warning shot to the temple, so to speak, uh, but a warning shot to say uh, never um, pursue an order that's illegal, unethical, unconstitutional, or something is so antithetical to your own sense of decency and, uh, and uh, conscience that you couldn't possibly carry out the order. And every one of the former defense secretaries signed it. Uh, most, most of you actually are Republicans. Two uh, worked uh, in the Trump, uh, were defense secretaries under Trump. But let me ask you this, Bill. Bill, do you have confidence that if he does try something, whether it's to invoke the Insurrection Act or some wag-the-dog foreign action, are you confident that the acting Defense Secretary Miller, who has really acted often like a Trump lackey, or or Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, who you noted allowed himself to be used at that atrocious Lafayette Square fiasco, are you confident they'll stand up to him? Well, as you know, um, uh, General Milley Milley, uh, uh, came out and apologized for having been used. And uh, Mark Esper did the same thing, and that's uh, essentially why he's gone. And this is typical of uh, anyone who serves uh, in the president's cabinet. You either agree with him or you're fired. Uh, Fair enough. I mean, you serve at the pleasure of the president. But when you're talking about in being in the chain of command, which the president is at the top of that, then the sec def down to the uh, commanders in the field, the um, chairman is not really in that chain of command. He's a principal advisor, military advisor to the president, but 
he's not in the chain of command per se. So now it goes from uh, the president to um, um, acting secretary um, uh, Miller. Um, and then down into CENTCOM or wherever he may uh, try and uh, whatever area he might try to go. But I think the danger here is that Trump is fomenting uh, anger. He is uh, ginning up the people to be very angry over alleged fraudulent activity. And then he's citing their anger as a reason why he may need to call out the military to suppress uh, the, the violence that might uh, flow from that. So it's really kind of a circular process whereby he generates the anger, he uh, generates the uh, domestic uh, unrest, and then he uses or tries to use the military to suppress it. So this is really kind of a, a warning shot saying, don't even think about that. And if you do, you're violating your oath to the Constitution, and you could be held responsible if you were to carry out an illegal order. Uh, there's no Nuremberg defense here for you, just following orders, sir. Well, that I mean, one of the things that's, you know, I think that letter is terribly important. I think if anything gives him hesitation, it's going to be that, not because he cares so much about the rule of law or following the Constitution. Uh, but when you look at the signees of that letter, but, you know, one of the things that makes you worry more is we talked about the Nixon time, and there was a Jim Schlesinger uh, there. Uh, there's nobody inside like that today, Bill. Well, uh, we have to assume there are people like that still at the Pentagon, although the president has done his best to weed out and take all of the top uh, echelon of uh, leaders uh, out of the Pentagon so he could put his own uh, functionaries there. So that's a cause for concern uh, that someone lower down the line, uh, you could have Chairman Milley uh, say, I'm sorry, sir, um, we can't support that. And he could be fired or he, he would resign. <clears throat> the Joint Chiefs could do the same. And the president still could go to the Secretary of Defense and say, I'm ordering you to carry out this uh, particular uh, mission. Uh, then it'll be up to um, uh, the acting uh, Secretary of Defense to say yes or no. Uh, and then he could be fired. So it can go down the line. The question becomes uh, how far down will it go before there's a revolt from within? Uh, I, I don't think we'll get there, uh, but I don't put it past President Trump to try it. I watched uh, part of his uh, ra- uh, speech to the, the, uh, the rally crowd, and it was uh, watching someone who has uh, really come unglued. Uh, he was uh, ranting and railing and talking about how disappointed he was in the Supreme Court that they, they no longer believe in the rule of law, that they have caved into the enemies of the people, the media. And it was just uh, listening to him uh, rave uh, in, in a way that's bound to uh, energize his uh, supporters out there on, on Capitol Hill right now. And we only have to worry to make sure that uh, they stay peaceful. Uh, peaceful protest is okay. Uh, violent protest is not. I, I thought it sounded like tapes I've I've heard of Mussolini back in the uh, back in the thirties. But James, go ahead. Uh, well, thank you, uh, Mr. Secretary. First of all, I just wanted to did, was Secretary Vice President Cheney the kind of the wrangler for this letter. Did, I mean, who actually got everybody on the phone and to sign off in the language? Or is he the kind of lead guy on this? Uh, actually, it was Eric Edelman who contacted. Okay, uh, I know, I know Ambassador Edelman, but he was—he's Cheney's guy. He, he right, okay, exactly. But, but, but yeah, I was just interested because you know something like this just doesn't happen. <laughs> okay, somebody got to, you know, you got it, all these former secretaries. You got to get language and get people, and you know, run it by this and get. Uh, that's a thing. I, I got that right. So let's talk about uh, General Austin here. Or what I would say, Mr. Austin, 
And so there's a people that expressed concern that uh, you know you had General Mattis, and I guess it was uh, General Marshall was Secretary of Defense, and they were forming the military. And there are many people that express that concern. Mm-hmm. I, and I definitely want to hear your views. My view is simply this. In the chain of command, you were the Secretary of Defense. I think you're second in the chain of command. Right. I was an E-4. All right. I think I was one millionth, two millionth, four hundred and eighty-second, or whatever it was. All right? right. However, right now, you and I have the same rank. We're civilians. You don't have any, and I, I, it does not bother me. And, and, you know, Eisenhower famously at times would not salute back because he said, I'm not in the army anymore. All right. He's not in the army anymore. Now, he is, he is not. And, and, and James, I have uh, written my support uh, for General Austin. I know him. Uh, I respect him. Uh, I think it's a, a question of the moment and the man. If I look at the man, I look at someone who is highly educated, highly admired, highly trained, has a scope of uh, uh, intellectual firepower second to none. And he has worked closely uh, with the president-elect, uh, Joe Biden. They have worked together when uh, uh, Joe Biden was vice president. And also he's worked very closely with Tony Blinken. Uh, the, the, the nominated Secretary of State. And what what I see from this is you have a very strong military man, former military man who's been a citizen working in the private sector, uh, who would uh, like to bring the strength of the military in support of diplomacy, but to minimize and reduce the the, the military itself to make it subordinate. And so the two of them working together would be a dramatic team. Secondly, for me at least, and I'm very sensitive to the subject of race for obvious reasons, but it seems to me to have the the, the first black secretary of defense um, be sworn in sends a tremendous signal uh, to the world. Uh, Number one, uh, it sends a signal that we are who we purport to be, namely a land of equal opportunity. The fact that you could have a black man in charge uh, of uh, the civilian man in charge of our military who gets on that plane and flies to every country. And when he steps off that plane, they say, this is the America we thought uh, we've always believed in. That is, you can come from whatever background, race, religion, ethnicity, and you can rise to the top on your merits. That's a very strong signal to most of the world, which is not white, uh, which is uh, brown uh, or black. Um, But this is a very strong signal about who we are, particularly in the wake of President Trump, who has been playing the race card most of his life. Uh, Everything he has done during his his four years in office and long before that was to cite black people as being inferior and to appeal to the white supremacists in our country. And I think at this particular moment, with Joe Biden coming in, to have General Austin assume that position as the highest officials in our country sends a tremendous signal to the world that we're living up to what we purport to be, and that is a equal justice uh, under law. And uh, that's why I've been supporting him. So I, at last I was having a conversation, of course, I'm obsessed with Georgia. And it's, James, do you worry about the military ballots? I said, let me tell you something. Half of those military ballots are black folk. 
<laughs> I guarantee you that in, in the United States military in Georgia, a good half of the people, uh, you know, because they've, they've, if you go to any military base, there's all kinds of, I mean, disproportionate, the, the, the number of, of black people in the military compared to the general population is higher. You know? Who was the first person to die uh, in the Revolutionary War? It's a black okay. man. Yeah. So this, this, is one of, this is one question I'd have. So, Secretary, you you were Secretary of Defense. You, you got the Army, you got the Navy, you got the Air Force, you got the Marine Corps. Are, are, are the other services going to look at this guy if he is an Army guy? And is that does that have the potential to create? There's always going to be rivalries and jealousies and things like that. Does that worry you in any way that? He will be perceived to favor the army over other services. Uh, no, uh, he will be seen as purple, uh, and that is, he wears no specific um, uh, uniform of any of the services, uh, and uh, that's how he uh, is. That's how he will be. Think of um, Jim Mattis. Jim Mattis was a Marine. Uh, did anyone think of him simply as a Marine when he took uh, office as of Secretary of Defense? They saw him as a highly decorated. Uh, officer uh, of the United States of America. I don't think anyone looked at him simply as a Marine. He was a as a, a very distinguished Marine, but uh, he became uh, purple. And it's the same with the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Does anyone look at the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs as being only Army? No. He represents all of the services uh, as, as Chairman of the Joint Chiefs. So that's not that's not a valid uh, uh, criticism to say, well, they'll look at him as the Army being in charge. Um, you know, when I was there, I made it a point to appoint um, um, people from different branches of our services to, to uh, the uh, commands that they were not accustomed to. So uh, Special Operations Command, you would think, okay, maybe Army, maybe Marine. No, I, I put an Air Force officer in there. Uh, I, I, I mixed it up to say we're not um, we're, we're going to pick the best and the brightest. We're going to put them where I think they'll be most effective, and that's the way it should be. So you don't um, you don't just serve your service. You're now a civilian, and you're serving the president of the United States and the American people. And you don't uh, put your army uh, uniform on. That come that came off four years ago. Bill Cohen, you were defense secretary and. 2000, uh, when there was a genuinely contested election. Uh, and if memory serves me correctly, there was a very smooth transition during that difficult time from your Pentagon to the George Bush, Donald Rumsfeld Pentagon. That's not occurring this time. What, what are the ramifications of their failure to fully cooperate with the, with the Biden people? Well, as you note from the letter that we uh, we signed um, and made public, one of the, our major concerns is the Pentagon is under um, an absolute uh, order uh, to facilitate the transfer of power. What separates us from other countries 
uh, other, uh, I should say, dictatorships and autocracies is the peaceful transfer of power. We have two competing parties, just like we have two competing football teams, basketball, baseball, and they they compete, uh, and the best team wins that day, and then you accept that loss and try the next time. Well, it's the same philosophy here. So the military is under an obligation to facilitate that transfer of power. What is the consequence of not doing that? Well, the Biden folks are saying, we're not getting enough information. We're not getting information about uh, deployment of forces, uh, um, how they're deployed, what orders are existing, what's the intelligence, uh, what is the uh, the nature of the threats that are out there that will involve uh, decision-making that we'll have to make coming in. And, you know, I've used this metaphor multiple times, but um, I see it as a, a, relay, uh, a relay run where the uh, last man on the, on the relay, he has to start running before the guy is going to pass on the baton. He has to start running before he gets there so that when he gets the baton handed to him, he's running at full speed. And this is what is important here. If Biden doesn't have the information, if his team doesn't have the intelligence, this is a very dangerous period of time. And whenever we're in a transition of power, that's when we fear we're most vulnerable because we've got a new administration coming in, an older one going out. We've got a shifting of personnel and people and policies. Uh, and it's really important that that baton be handed over while the team coming up is able to take it and run. Now, when I was at the Pentagon, the moment that um, Donald Rumsfeld was nominated, I called him. He was out in the West, I think at his ranch. And I called him and said, Don, <clears throat> I'm sitting here right now. I'm going to make a list of the top 10 things you have to be concerned about. And I sat down uh, to write it. And it turned out by the time I finished, there were 59. And uh, when he came to meet with me at the Pentagon, we went over uh, every one of those. I wanted to make have him be sure of what was out there, what we had addressed, what we had failed to address, and what he needed to focus on the minute he walked in that office uh, as the new Secretary of Defense. That that's common practice. That's what that's what adults do. That's what patriots do. Uh, they don't try to inhibit the incoming administration. They don't try to in any way uh, have a two week vacation. I mean, I heard that and I, I started to laugh. Um, they said, well, we've, we're shutting down for a couple of weeks. And I said, you can't shut down uh, for a couple of weeks. There's no holiday from history. There's no holiday from national security. So what are you taking a holiday from? Make sure the incoming administration has all that it needs because it's going to need that information from January 20 and start running that day. We've got threats out there. We've got threats from within. The FBI has said we've got right-wing militia who uh, constitutes the gravest threat internally. And we've got other threats. We had Russia once again trying to uh, ha hack in and be successful and in hacking into our infrastructure. Uh, again, Russia never mentioned by President Trump, never mentioned about the 2016 intervention uh, in our electoral system. So, um, you know, there are a lot of uh, potential adversaries out there that we have to contend with. But right now, we've got to make sure that the Biden folks have information. James? Yeah, Mr. Secretary, anybody, every bloviator, and certainly we all fall into the category, says there's one thing that you do in a time of crisis. You, you have to show certainty and steadiness and blah, blah, blah. And I think that, that like, I think there's a lot of truth to it. So... There's an aircraft carrier. We have one aircraft carrier. As I appreciate this, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm going by memory. We have one aircraft carrier in the Middle East. 
And the secretary, the current secretary of defense, and I read this in the press, it was so white hot, he called it back home as, a, as some kind of an idea in de-escalation. And 48 hours later, the president overrides that decision and turns the aircraft carrier back around. That doesn't seem like a really consistent policy. Or that doesn't seem like a chain of command that's in sync. Am I missing something here? Uh, James, you're not. I mean, let's go back to uh, when President Trump made a unilateral decision to pull our troops out of Syria. Uh, he did that without uh, really conferring with the central commander. Um, he did it uh, certainly over the objection of uh, James Mattis uh, when uh, he was sec def. And by uh, doing that, he placed our own troops in danger. And that was one of the key reasons why Jim Mattis decided he could no longer serve this president. And But putting our, uh, our people in danger was of no concern to the president. He didn't think to call our allies and say, hey, by the way, folks, we're going to be pulling out. So maybe you'll make that decision uh, to save your forces as well. Whatever it is, he had an obligation to start to, you know, to confer. Now you uh, uh, fast forward. And we're here in this uh, situation. I don't know all of the facts, but I know this. Uh, there have been signals coming out of Iran that they're looking for some way to retaliate for the assassination of Soleimani. Uh, and that's a real concern in terms of if they're doing things that might put our troops in harm, put them in danger of being killed or maimed, then we want to deter that. So having a strong presence in the Middle East is uh, very important. But here's what happened most recently. We had two uh, B-2 bombers uh, fl fly over, make a round trip over the Arabian Gulf area. Uh, and then we had a second uh, trip made within three weeks. Plus, we had two aircraft carriers in the region. That's where it gets uh, complicated because I think our Navy was getting worried that you keep extending the deployment of that aircraft carrier from six months to nine months to 10 months, then you're wearing out not only the aircraft carrier, but the personnel. Uh, and so the, I believe the decision was made to try to de-escalate, but also that that ship was due to come back uh, for a rest or refreshment uh, purpose. And then the president decided to turn it and send it back. Now, so that puts the tensions higher. If you have two carriers in the region, you've had two overflights of B-2 bombers. You've had a U.S. submarine in the uh, region and you had an Israeli submarine. That's a lot of firepower. Now, Theoretically, they're there as a deterrent. And my hope is uh, that the Iranians don't do anything that would cause Trump to see it as a threat that he could then order a military attack upon Iran and then leave the mess for Joe Biden to clean up in the months to come. So um, it's one thing to be there as a deterrent. Uh, and uh, it does put stress on our troops uh, when they're there for deployments that are way longer than they were scheduled for, not coming home, not seeing their families, just being tired. Uh, and then to have them redeployed sends a signal that we don't have a, uh, a continuity of policy, that the president really is material. He will say one thing one day and another the next. And so that has been very unsettling, by the way to all of our allies, and I deal with them. To this day, I deal with our allies, and I deal with some of our adversaries on a regular basis. Uh, and they look at us and say, what's happened? 
what has happened to the United States? Uh, they can't quite believe uh, that we'd have a president uh, ignore the activities of uh, Putin, that Putin is actually having his agenda carried out. Putin wants to uh, downgrade NATO. He wants to downgrade EU. He wants to sow division in the United States of America. He wants to see the American press treated as the enemy of the people. He wants to see the intelligence community uh, disregarded. I mean, all of the things on the agenda or the bucket list of the to-do list of President Putin, we've been carrying out. Uh, and so this doesn't send a signal of uh, great confidence in our country. Uh, and I know that our allies are just, uh, they're, they're stunned uh, that uh, the, the degree to which we have fallen uh, from the, the pinnacle of our power, uh, not military power, that we still have, but moral power, uh, ethical power, the idea of America being the beacon of freedom in, in, a, in a dark world. Uh, that has been diminished. Other countries don't look to us with the same admiration. Maybe fear, they don't know what we're going to do, but they don't look to us with the same admiration. And that gives, um, that gives a lot of comfort to the Chinese, the Russians, and other countries, North Korea and others. So I, I think the sooner the 20 days or the two weeks can expire and Joe Biden can take over, uh, we're going to be a lot better off, a lot safer. Amen, Bill Cohen. No one has put it any better. Uh, and uh, among the, the many reasons that James and I have such tremendous respect and admiration for you is that we do share one thing in common. Like the two of us, you very much married above yourself, Bill. So please give a big hug to Janet Langhart and a happy new year to both of you. All right. And if you say anything bad about me, she'll hit you upside your head. <laughs> well, she's here to make sure that I stay on course. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Secretary, for, for your honesty. I don't know if I, I'm still scared to death about the next two weeks, but if, you know, if I, th I think honest, we all should be. I think we all should be. Oh, man, am I? Well, Thank you, sir. Okay, bye bye. All right, James, our, one of our favorite segments now, the Q&A, Sherry from Santa Rosa, California, who really says she enjoys our podcast, but she says, are we going to witness the rise of another Trump-like figure? If so, will it be more or less extreme version of Trump, or what would be the timing? She's worried. As she well should be. Uh, it, and one of those people we need to have back on the show is a Professor Ballou, because Long after he's gone, the danger to the country from these crazy militia people and Trumpy people, I think I don't I think it's gonna be permanent. Whether or not they become the nominee of the Republican Party, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm less certain to that. But the, this kind of virus, it you can't vaccinate totally against it. And it's gonna be out there and she is correct to be worried about it. And uh, at some point, we have to reconsider getting uh, Professor Ballou back on the show. Oh, she's a great guest. I, I agree. Um, there's a James, not James Carville, but James from London, who wants to know, do the Democrats mishandle the COVID relief negotiations given the lack of aid for state and local governments? Could Pelosi have struck a deal with 
with uh, Mnuchin before the election uh, and let the White House put pressure on McConnell. I think Nancy Pelosi is the best speaker in my lifetime, certainly the best speaker since Sam Rayburn, if not better. She's Her achievements are just extraordinary. I do think she made a mistake this time. I think they could have taken a deal uh, in uh, September and October. The pressure would have been enormous on the Senate, would have divided the Senate Republicans. But let me just say this, too. People who say, well, if both sides are at fault here, the House passed a COVID relief stimulus bill in May, in May, and Mitch McConnell sat on it for seven months. So, yeah, I think it would have been better in retrospect to have cut a deal back then in uh, September, October, but the prime fault on the reason there was such delay here rests with Mitch McConnell. Uh, I I noticed your consistent view because you've expressed it on this show and you've heard it read many times. I find no flaw in everything that you said. I, I, I do think that if, if I were young, I would start a, a group in Washington and it would be the, the committee to fight both sideism. And I think one of the most destructive things that has happened, and it, it probably started out with the best of intentions. Well, they both, they both, if you go back and you look at the war road, you know, and, and I that back then, that was 1992. You know, if they say something is 350,000 and we say something is $3.50, they'll report it. Well, they're both wrong. No, it's a difference. There's a difference. And it just became in the middle of the whole culture to be able to say, you know, I like some of the things Republicans do. I like some of the things Democrats do, I don't like some. Is he, yeah, there's always, but it, when it comes like that, then this is how this stuff gets started. And, and you know, you go to focus groups and you, yeah, they both do it. They all do it. It's the same thing. Or if you don't like that, then, you know, what about this? And that has been a, a very, it was it kind of sublime because it made sense. It was made to everybody as it was happening. And over a period of time, it became deathly destructive to American politics. Yeah. No, I uh, I agree. Uh, we're going to stay over uh, across the pond. Oliver in Dublin, Ireland. Question, assuming Biden does not run in 2024, when he'll be, what, 82 years old, is, is Kamala Harris a shoo-in for the nomination, or could someone else pull a surprise? James. If Merrick Garland locks Donald Trump up, up, as he should do, and I hope he does, then he will be my personal choice to be the next Democratic <laughs> nominee. If anybody doubts where I stand on this, you have no doubt. All right. Now, I don't, I, I don't know. By the way, I, uh, my uh, family reunion of those that get, get vaccinated, we're going to be in County Monaghan, which is about an hour uh, north of, of Dublin. Uh, I yeah I don't I, I don't think she's the foregone conclusion to be front runner. Uh, who knows and you know where this country's going to be in twenty twenty four? But she certainly you know that one would acknowledge that vice presidents uh, tend to get their party's nomination. But yeah. you know we'll see. There's a that there's a lot of a lot of football left to play here. Listen, uh, confession is supposed to be good for the soul, so this is very soulful. A year ago, I did not think Joe Biden was going to win the Democratic nomination. 
much less be president. So I think I'm going to pass on predicting who will be the 2024 nominee uh, for the uh, for the for the for a the, year a year ago I did not, but I don't know ten and a half months ago we did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, starting in March we did, but but you know before then at least I was very South very skeptical. South and Carolina, particularly after those first couple primaries. South Carolina. Uh, let's return to our shores and Eton uh, in Manhattan, uh, New York. Ask uh, she or um, Eton says, I hope AOC doesn't primary Chuck Schumer in 2022. But if she does, what are her chances of winning? I would say somewhere between very, very slim and none. I mean, really none. She's not going to travel well outside of New York. And one thing about Chuck Schumer, you can like or dislike Chuck Schumer. Chuck Schumer goes to every county in New York every single year. And my wife and I gave a commencement speech at a wonderful school up there, Marist College, about five years ago. And who shows up but Chuck Schumer? And they said he shows up every year. And he went from that speech at Marist College, he went up to the Finger Lakes, which is about three hours away, to speak to another college commencement. No one works the state harder than Chuck Schumer. And uh, AOC, you'd get clobbered if you run. So, you know that upshot needle that we're all addicted to? Yeah. Okay. That needle for Chuck Schumer's, you know, to win Democratic primary 2022, let's just yeah. assume that yesterday it was on 55. Today it's on 85. Right. All right. The biggest thing that happened to Chuck Schumer's re-election campaign is we won those two seats in Georgia. Yep. Right. So, yes, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. You know, I, I think his chances are, are good. I think they're better today than they were yesterday. Yeah. Yep. And they, I, I think they were actually, you know, even higher than 55 yesterday. But uh, yeah, no, he, yeah, if, Chuck, not, if Chuck Schumer runs, he's going to be reelected. And I'm almost sure he'll do that. We have one uh, from Jim. Now, Jim, uh, Jim didn't tell us where he's from. And I like the question, Jim. And next, I think I know this, though. He said, you know, where do you see BCS football going? Uh, he said, well, he does say in a question, I apologize to Jim, that he resides in Boise, a big Boise State fan. His son-in-law yeah. played for Boise State. And he wants to know what's happening to the BCS. Uh, well, first of all, we just have to throw this year out not just because LSU didn't have a good year, but it it just, I'm going to watch a game. I, I'm, I'm, I'm actually the first college football game I've been excited about all year is Alabama and Ohio State. But it, it, the idea, you know, and we keep coming back to we have to expand, we have to expand, we have to expand. The truth of the matter is the games historically have not been very good. The average, the margin of victory it, 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 it's something like 23 points. Yep. And they say they want to expand it. They can't get a fourth team. LSU could have beat Oklahoma last year by 80 points. We just stopped trying at halftime. That, that Notre Dame could have played Alabama 100 times and couldn't have won one game. All right? So it's... It, 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 it's I, I like the four team format, and maybe sometimes you're going to get four really competitive teams. But the truth of the matter is, the problem with college football is you already know before the year it's going to be Ohio State, Alabama, Clemson. I think we're part of the the the, the, the secondary mix, and we'll be good in a couple of years. I mean, it's the same teams that win the recruiting battle every year. It there's no suspense. 
left in college football. Yeah. I mean, you never, very rarely are you surprised. I guess you would say, and not to say this because I'm an LSU guy, but I'd say to 2019, you, you, you knew they were going to be good. You were shocked at how good they actually were. But when's the last time you've seen college football? I said, well, I never saw that coming. No, no, that's right. There, there, There is no suspense, and there may not be as long as Nick Saban stays in Tuscaloosa. Uh, Justin from New York City has said Mississippi is the state with the highest African-American population, around 38 percent. Louisiana, your state, James, is almost the same as Georgia with around 33. Why is a state like Georgia, you know, in the process of flipping purple, at least, and maybe a little blue sometimes, while Mississippi and Louisiana remain solidly red? Well, as James said earlier, that election yesterday was decided by rural black voters in large part. But the reason they were able to decide it was because of those white, moderate liberal suburbs, Gwinnett County, Georgia, which does have a sizable uh, minority population, but they have white liberals there too, white, moderate, young people who've come down there uh, uh, to Georgia. And Gwinnett County, which is the home of Newt Gingrich, voted 60% for Warnock and Ossoff yesterday. And I don't think Mississippi or Louisiana have those kind of places yet. Maybe they'll get them someday. So the, uh, the, all right, the example I want to give is I talked about this last night, yesterday, is the cab. All right, the cab is the most instructive, and I'll tell you why. There's, the, the cab is a majority black county. But the other thing is, is the cab probably has as high a percentage of post-bachelor college is almost anywhere in the country, like, like Montgomery County, Maryland or something. The reason is, you think DeKalb County, that's where the CDC is, that's where Emory is. There's no DeKalb in Louisiana or Mississippi. There's just none. Or, there's certainly no Gwinnett. I mean, it's a, Gwinnett is a very good example. So when you look at, at this, you want you, you to get the percent of the state that, that, that's black, that's, very, that's important, and the percent of college Okay, and just the number the percent of college graduates in Georgia is just so much higher than it is in Louisiana, Mississippi. But let's turn back to Mississippi. One of the things that people don't understand that are not from this part of the world is a lot of, quote, strategists, commentators have this view that black people live in urban areas. They even there's a thing called urban marketing, which is a, actually a code word. And it's not racist, it's just, but I mean, that's what you, if you say we go on urban market, that, that, that means in the marketing meeting, you're talking about going after black folks. So we find out in Georgia, which is really true in Mississippi and Louisiana, there's gazillions of black people that don't live in New Orleans or Baton Rouge. And the, 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 we don't do a good enough job. If, if you got Mississippi to, to vote in proportion that they got Georgia to vote, you could win a statewide race in Mississippi with probably 22% of the white. And, you know, there is a, a South Haven. There are Memphis suburbs in Mississippi. There, there is Hines, Madison County, which is outside of Jackson, all right? There is Oxford, there is Starkville, there, there, there are places in Mississippi that you could 
get close to that kind of 22% the white vote. But if, but if you got 38% population and you vote in 31, you're not going to do it. And if the we got part- one more, James, and this is, we got a little time of Gordon in Mount Pleasant, Michigan. This is something that you have touched on and we touched on with yesterday's experience. Uh, even though Trump alienated some of those who voted for him in 2020, he did manage to drill down and he turned out a pretty big vote. Uh, and there's still a big core out there. Do you think that the, that some of these folks are going to turn out in 2022 and 2024 if Donald Trump is not on the ballot? Or will they turn out if Ivanka's on the ballot in Florida or Lara Trump is on the ballot in North Carolina? And that is maybe the best question we've ever gotten. Because the, the one thing that we know, that Donald Trump is, is the greatest turnout politician that ever lived. That, that, and that's not in dispute. What we don't know, will, will, will that high, jacked-up, increased turnout, I mean, our, he generated a lot of turnout among, among non-college whites, <laughs> let me tell you, a lot. And also, he generated a lot of turnout among, uh, the, you know, black people, brown people, whatever, and, you know, a lot of turnout among, you know, college-educated people. And we're going to have to see if that kind of voting behavior is it permanent or is it just is a lot of it just reflective of him? I don't know the answer to that. Uh, maybe we could ask Mike McDonald some, you know, in a future show when we have him on. Yeah. Uh, well, I think that's a good point. I think Georgia gave us some indications though. Uh, you know, it's at least a small indicator to begin with, but uh, it's something that we'll have to, uh, you know, yeah, but he was kind of ballot. You know, I, that, that wasn't, that wasn't the quite a, the lab experiment, all right? No, it wasn't, uh, it, because among other things, uh, his behavior. But uh, we will follow this in hopefully Politics War Room 2022, and maybe right. if we're real lucky, Politics War Room 2024. All right, James, we're going to be doing a feature that we're going to love, uh, and it's the outrage of the week, and we're going to pick something that just is, it's beyond the top headlines, but it's just so outrageous it makes your blood boil. And I've got a good one this week. John F. Kennedy initiated the Medal of Freedom to recognize outstanding Americans in every walk of life. <clears throat> it's a remarkable collection. Marian Anderson, Father Hesburgh, Jonas Salk, Rachel Carson, Henry Aaron, and Bill Russell, Matthew Ridgway. I went to one 15 years ago in the honorees, including Alan Greenspan and Muhammad Ali. It's a cherished American institution. And Donald Trump has never passed an opportunity to smash a cherished institution. So he's awarding the medal this month to, are you ready? Congressman Devin Nunes and Jim Jordan. Their qualifications, they are total apologists for all of Trump's misdeeds and crimes. They're actually thugs. Nunes was forced to step aside as intelligence chair because he violated the rules. Jordan has been accused, even though he's denied it, but accused by multiple former Ohio State wrestlers of covering up sexual abuse in that program when he was an assistant coach. Just imagine, James, the distance between Father Hesburg and Matthew Ridgway and Jim Jordan and Devin Nunes. Uh, you know, I'm, I'll say this, Albert. I, I, I'm not going to allow myself to imagine it because I just get, I'm so goddamn happy what happened in Georgia last night. I just <laughs> cannot think about it. 
between Father Ashberg and Matthew Ridgway and Jim John. I'm just going around to have some lunch and I'd throw up. But I got to say, I, I, I am, I'll be back on the outrage circuit next week, but I, I, I'm one happy dude here today. Well, next week, maybe you'll have maybe he'll give it to Roger Stone and Paul Manafort and we can discuss that. But uh, there's reason for you to be happy, James. There's reason for a lot of us to be happy. Extraordinary week, extraordinary day. And the interesting thing is the Democrats control the Senate because they have two senators from Georgia, two senators from Arizona and two senators from Virginia. Who would have thought that 20 years ago? Oh, man, I just have this. I'm happy about last night. I'll get. That, that being an outrage with this guy and it's like being a mosquito in a nudist camp. I mean, Jesus, where do you land? Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. Remember to email your questions to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. And tell us where you're from. Thank you for subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our war room planning for 2021.